Welcome. I must poop. Ugh. Mission Control, this is Captain of the SS Endurance. The date is October 31st, 2922. A new complication has arisen on board. SCP's communication module is malfunctioning. It is stuck, saying the same sentence in a loop. If I fail in repairing SCP, then this may well be my final transmission, as the mission is simply impossible without SCP's proficiencies. SCP, SCP, please respond. Welcome, I must poop. Damn it. SCP, we'll both be dead without your capabilities on board. Welcome, I must poop. I must consult the synthetic companion pod manual. Ah, I think I've discovered the issue. SCP, uh, are you better now? Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the ocean. Welcome, wanderers, space travelers, internet denizens, netizens, to another episode of the O Show. The fourth one, in fact. And I do have some special things prepared for today. Primarily, material from the Prose Edda by Snorri Strolson. This is basically the source material of everything we know about Nordic mythology and history. So I've actually I've, I've been excited about this one because I'm really passionate about this topic. It's super interesting. But before that, let's get into Science of the Week. All right. So I'll start out with the things I don't perfectly understand. And that is quantum physics so i have an article in front of me universal parity quantum computing a new architecture that overcomes performance limitations that's pretty cool why because i'm super excited for quantum computers to become mainstream not just mainstream but actually work there are three dudes wolfgang lechner or lechner together with philip hawk or hawk hawkey and Peter Zoller, or I don't know, yeah. Um, they're working with each other um, under the LHZ architecture name. Um, after They've named it after themselves. And uh, they've essentially designed um, something for optimization problems within the field of quantum computing. So why am I excited about quantum computers? Well, because it's virtually spaceless. Um, in the sense that, so in, in, you know how in computing, in normal computers, we have bits, that's pieces of information. With quantum computers, you have quantum bits or qubits. And the difference between these bits, um, qubits and, and bits and bytes on the, on computing, um, is that they 
can't be stored. So qubits cannot be stored. The only way they can be stored is by being related to other qubits. So it's a network that stores it. And so it's it's these qubits are stored within a network, right? So they can only be stored in relation to one another. It's quite interesting. But the crazy thing is, is that how much processing speed um, can be achieved through quantum computing. It becomes virtually limitless, which is very exciting. Very exciting indeed. And here is another article. Music class in sync with higher math scores, but only at higher income schools. Let's look into this. Daniel Mackin Freeman, a doctoral candidate in sociology and Dara Schiffer, Schiffer, an associate professor of sociology, used a large nationally representative data set to see which types of arts classes impact math achievement and how it varies based on the socioeconomic compositions of this cure. Yeah. So they basically found out that, okay, this is what Mack and Freeman says. If you think about it at an intuitive level, that's how Mack and Freeman sounds. Reading music is just doing math. Of course, it's a different type of math, but it might be a more engaging form of math for students than learning calculus. Um, I don't know, I feel like he's making a stretch. I play guitar. I used to classically train, so I can, like, I used to read notes. I never really connected it to math. <laughs> I, I get what he's saying, but it's a bit of a stretch to, to say that... Um, it's more engaging form of math. I get it. It is math, just like geometry and all that. But um, it's so it's it's as it's as much as video gaming is math, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, even walking is math, you know. I think the guy's really into math, so he sees it in everything. Could that be it? However, the positive relationship between music course taking and math achievement is primarily isolated to schools that serve more socially privileged students. Yeah, it's the same whole thing of higher status kids have higher IQ and higher achievement levels than low status. This is, I, I'm not, this is like known within, you know, psychology and, and you know, schools. In the school districts. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah okay so this one actually no i'm gonna i'm gonna start with this is i saw this and i only opened it for the whoa i only opened it for the article title i mean uh this is the title it's by the natural history museum eye eyes those little tiny scary scary creepy monkey things eye eyes observed Nose picking, booger eating for the first time. <laughs> That's the actual name of the article. Nose picking, booger eating, eye eyes. <laughs> That's so funny. Nose picking might be thought of socially unacceptable behavior among humans, but amazingly, we are one of 12 species of primate to exhibit this habit. Guys, come on. Do you, do you, do you pick your nose? Do you eat your boogers? Yeah? Don't lie. We are one of 12 species of primates to do it. No shame. Um, yeah, so I found it very cool. There's a, there's an image where it... I can't believe it. Yeah, so these eye eyes have evolved a... Uh, okay, so in truth, the third and fourth fingers of the eye eye are elongated and skinny and are highly specialized to help them feed. Amazingly, the fingers make up about 65% of the length of the hand, with the hand itself making up over 40% of the total length of the forelimb. 
So basically, they have super long fingers. And there's a picture of one, like an x-ray of one picking his nose. And he's like picking all the way into his brain. It's fucking weird. That's pretty funny and amazing. Cute eye eyes. I want an eye eye now just so he can pick my nose for me. There is very little evidence about why we and other animals pick our nose. Nearly all the papers that you can find were written as jokes. Of the serious studies... Is that true? Nearly all of the papers that you find were written as jokes? Of the serious studies, there are a few in the field of psychology, but for biology, there's hardly anything. One study shows that picking your nose can spread bacteria such as Staphylococcus, while others show that people who eat their own snot have fewer dental cavities. That's pretty interesting. I remember once, I think I was in high school, and we spoke about booger eating with our bio teacher. Yeah, you know, there is some, it's an actual question, like, you know, like, what's, what are the um, implications of booger eating, you know? I've, I've seen chimps do it, I've seen kids do it, I've seen myself do it, come on, let's not lie. A new, a review of nose picking in primates with new evidence of its occurrence, and so we have a new, a new primate brother or sister joining our nose picking species welcome eye eyes to the nose picking humanity okay so here are two studies i found that so yesterday i had a nice class so it's a seminar in education and we were basically talking about learning and how so we were talking about play what role play has in learning right so we were talking my professor says that um mammals uh are, are mammals are all mammals basically have this playing behavior and in my when he said that I, w- I was kind of iffy because I was thinking to myself uh, I don't know okay so so I immediately thought of bugs right and so I'm sure most people think of bugs as mindless uh, tiny automatons uh, but I had one experience once which I will share with you now I was sitting outside and it was probably summer and uh, I'm sitting on the ground and I see a uh, praying mantis walking in front of me. And um, he, he, he was walking and I, it's hard to describe this, but he realized I was there and he stopped, turned his head and looked directly at my face. And like, I swear we were making eye contact and this guy's the size of my middle finger. So he's like five... I don't know, four centimeters? Is that four centimeters? I don't know, five, six, seven, ten centimeters? I don't know. But he's like two inches. And uh, he looked right in my eye. And I knew he was aware of me. And he wasn't looking like at my body or he was looking at my face. It was very weird. And after that, I kind of had a newfound respect for at least praying mantises. And honestly, yeah, it, it umbrellaed over other bugs like... It's hard to... That guy looked at me. It was weird. And so I, 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 I... Since that experience, I had been thinking a bit more um, generously about the intelligence of bugs, right? Especially the larger ones. I don't know. Uh, so this is this article is related. This happened yesterday. I, I really think this is uh, incredible because I was thinking about it and today in the morning I saw this and I was uh, amazed. So this came out on October 27th, yesterday, uh, from the day I'm recording. And uh, so, first ever study shows bumblebees play. Wow. 
Bumblebees play according to new research led by Queen Mary University of London, published in Animal Behavior. It is the first time that object play behavior has been shown in an insect, adding to mounting evidence that bees may experience positive, quote-unquote, feelings. <laughs> Phenomenal. Truly crazy. If, if bees are playing, uh, and, and the thing is, they're so social, so it makes sense for them to, to play. You know, uh, I, I saw a video of them playing with the, you know, bee-sized balls, tiny like bead things where they were rolling them around and just having fun. And I, I, I saw that, um, yeah, here. So the study also found that younger bees rolled more balls than older bees, mirroring human behavior of young children and other juvenile mammals and birds being the most playful. And the male bees rolled them for longer than their female counterparts. Super cool. Super duper cool. I kind of want to shrink down to tiny human size and befriend bees. Maybe I like ride a bee, become the king of a beehive or something. The honey king. Other one also related to this mammalian kind of intelligence uh, schism that exists in the animal kingdom. Social mammals evolve faster than solitary ones, according to a new study of evolution. A groundbreaking new research project has analyzed the evolution of the placental mammal skull using 3D scans of 322 specimens housed in more than 20 international museum collections and crafted a new model of how mammals diversified based on the emerging patterns. Pretty cool. By gathering data on the skulls of all major groups of placental mammals, both extinct and extant, the team of researchers led by Professor Anjali Goswami at the Natural Museum, Natural History Museum have gained a unique look across them. So Professor Goswami says this research will transform how we understand the incredible radiation of placental mammals, a group that ex includes our own species and how that critical period after the last mass extinction 66 million years ago has shaped over evolution ever since. The arrival of blah blah. Uh, so, speaking of this, we, I, so, playing is a uh, is a kind of behavior that denotes intelligence in an animal, right? And the crazy thing is, I, I spoke with my professor after class about this, uh, about. So I've seen this. I don't know where or what it's called, but I remember seeing a documentary about octopi. And how so octopus octopi aren't social animals whatsoever they spend most of their lives alone um they hunt alone they live alone they're lone wolves they uh they play right so these octopi play on their own even if you give them a, a novel object or something they play with it right and i don't know what to say about that you know uh I, well another thing we were talking about was play and and the professor explained play as uh it's purposeless right it, 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 it's not leading up to anything and it's uh, the way i understood it was essentially that it's it is the purpose in itself right so while playing it's not like we're you're not playing to get the candy right we're playing because the playing is the candy right you're just enjoying playing in itself and so i don't know it's a it's a question mark but it's very interesting and that ends the news section
Now, to get to the juice, today I'm going to be speaking about the Prose Edda. So what is the Prose Edda? The Prose Edda is a manuscript from the 13th century written by a dude called Snorri Sturluson. S-N-O-R-R-I-S-T-U-R-L-U-S-O-N. Sturluson. Um, so before, I'm just going to give an introduction to what this is and kind of how, I don't want to, the Scandinavians of that time viewed their own history and their own mythology. So this is 13th century. So this is after the Scandinavian world has had been Christianized, right? They adopted Christianity uh, in the last like 400 years. And uh, so this is not a pure kind of Nordic, if you want, version of their stories. This is a newer kind of contemporary of the 13th century um, view of, of their own myth and history, right? Something very interesting about the way they they spoke of their history. So, so they never wrote down their history. It was all uh, transmitted orally through generations, right? Until you get this dude, Snorri, who comes and compiles this book called the Prose Edda. So there's another book called the po- uh, the Poetic Edda, which is um, it's 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 essentially the same thing as the Prose Edda, but it talks about different stories and it's mainly in a poetic form. So the Prose Edda be- begins with a prologue. Um, there are sections. The book is cut up into many 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 sections. And uh, and the first chapter, if you want, is the prologue. And um, I'll briefly... Okay, so uh, let me explain how they understood history and myth and legend and, and gods and all that. So a lot of... Okay, so their gods are directly linked to historical figures, right? So you have figures like... Okay, so here, the third section in the prologue is titled The People of Troy and Thor, right? So they they kind of understood so so they kind of understood their his, major historical figures as being gods, right? So like they they speak about the the war in uh, Troy and Agamemnon or Memnon, I think he's called in this book. Um so you have these figures that are kind of gods, historical figures and it's emerging of different cultures and it's 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 pretty messy it's pretty messy uh it's not like reading other uh, cultures uh, mythologies because they're more focused on on their uh, geographical area and maybe they aren't as influenced by other uh or maybe they are and it's just clearly it's more clearly seen in 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 nordic myth so very briefly i'll go over the prologue Essentially, it starts in the beginning, the first section, talking about God and Adam and Eve. Okay, so don't forget this is a Christianized um, mentality, a Christianized belief system. So they do have Adam and Eve. They have the development. You know, they talk about Noah's Ark and how the people, you have eight people who survived and from them, the the people of today are all descended. Uh, It talks about how the people, basically, we multiplied and uh, we became... Uh, greedy and we forgot about God and you know the, the typical story and uh, yeah so you also have all the gods I'm not gonna get into the details of how these gods came about you know the main pantheon of of the Nordic uh, mythos 
I'm gonna go into King Gilfi and the woman Gefjun. So King Gilfi was a the king of Sweden. Um, uh, he it's said that he offered a traveling woman in return for the pleasure of her company a piece of plow land in his kingdom as large as four oxen could plow in a day and night. But this woman named Gefjun was of the Aesir. She took four oxen from Jotunheim, or the giant, the land of the giants, in the north. They were her own sons by a giant, and she, she yoked them to the plow, which dug so hard and deep that she cut the land loose. Basically here, it's explaining how King Gilfi met this woman and said, if you sleep with me, um, I will give you a piece of land at this size. And she's basically like, oh, okay. And she essentially expands the land using her four uh, oxen giant sons, right? And here is the, the, the verse that is describing this. Gefion dragged from Gilfi, gladly the land beyond value. Denmark's increase, steam rising from the swift-footed bulls. The oxen bore eight, moons of the forehead and four heads, hauling as they went in front of the grassy isle's wide fisher. So it's essentially explaining how using her son ox giants, she plowed the land and basically expanded it, cutting into it and making it grow, which is pretty damn cool. So, yeah, so this is how uh, Gilfi's story begins. So uh, it's said that King Gilfi was a wise and skilled man in magic. He was amazed that the Aesir knew so much, and so naturally he wanted to learn more and decided to go and visit them. Now don't forget, I don't know actually if I mentioned this, but the Aesir are Asians, right? So they, at least from their understanding, the Aesir are the Asians or people from the Asia. So yeah, so I think I should go back a step and just quickly explain how they saw the world in three sections, right? So you had the Africa, which was the south of the world, which they saw as this hot, um, dry area. Then you have the middle of the world and at the top of which it gets really cold. So that's kind of like um, Europe. And then you have Asia which is they describe it as a beautiful and wide space land. So th there is almost a kind of, mm, it's kind of like they've made Asia into this iconic world, right? They, there, there is a degree of looking up to, to Asia. And if you do look at it historically, the greatest civilizations uh, at the time were kind of in Asia. Uh, well, yeah, obviously you had the Roman Empire before, but, but, at that point, I'm thinking, yeah, Alexander the Great, I think, was around this time. Then you also had uh, uh, Attila the Hun, right, which they also refer to as Otli. They talk about him in their stories. as well. Anyway, that's besides the point. Just to explain that there are three parts of the world, and he wanted to go to the Aesir, which they saw as Asia. So the land in which the Aesir live is called Asgard, okay? And this is part of Yggdrasil, the world tree. I've posted the picture of the world tree on my Instagram that's in this book. And it's just a nice picture to see what kind of creatures. And we're going to talk about some of them in a bit. So King Gilfi goes to, to the Aesir. And um, obviously because they're gods, they knew he was coming. So uh, Gilfi gets the, to the fortress, which the Aesir make to look like Valhalla as an illusion. And uh, he gets there, goes into the, the, the hallway. And uh, there he finds himself standing in front of a man. He was juggling short swords and had seven in the air at once. The man spoke first, asking the visitor's name. Gilfi named himself Gangleri, saying that he had traveled over trackless paths. He asked for a night's lodging and inquired who owned the hall. The man answered that it belonged to their king. I can take you to see him, then you can ask him his name yourself. The man then turned and went ahead into the hall. So Gilfi meets this man 
who's uh, standing there and saying, you can meet the king, follow me. So all doorways before entering, gaze into carefully. One never knows where on the benches enemies are sitting. This is sayings of the high one, number one. So once Gilfi gets to the their king, he sees three thrones, one each higher than the other. Uh, there were three men sitting in each. He asked the name of the ruler. The man guiding him replied that the king was in the lowest of the high seats. He was called high. Next, the one called just as high, while the one highest up was called third. Then high asked the new arrival if there was some more pressing cause of his visit. Although he was welcome to food and drink, as were all in the hall of the high one, Gilfi replied that he wanted to know first whether there was a wise man in the hall. High said that Gilfi would not escape unharmed unless he grew wiser, adding, Stand forward while you inquire. The one who recounts shall sit. So, at this point, this, um, okay, so we have this trinity, if you want, right? Wink, wink, Christianity, right? The Father, the the Son, the Holy Spirit. So, you have this trinity, and this is the High One, right? So, who is the High One? This is the All-Father, or Odin. Um, This is part of the illusion. So, he's split himself into three so that he can deal with Gilfi. And so, him and Gilfi, after this um, interaction, Gilfi starts asking him questions about everything under the sky that he knows, right? So, and then this is where you get a bunch of sections. Um, there's a section on the All-Father. He asks them about the All-Father, not knowing they are the All-Father themselves. Um, uh, he talks about Niflheim and Muspelheim, uh, Genungagap, and the emergence of Emir. Mm, lots and lots of stuff. But what I want to focus on is Loki. Why is that? Well, I do find Loki to be super interesting. Um, lots of weirdness goes around in Loki's story and he's also directly related to Ragnarok, the end of the end of the world, you know, the apocalypse. Um, and so I'm going to skip all these cool stuff. Anyone who's played God of War would really be into this, or at least the new God of War would be very much into this. It explains the whole mythos. Um, here you have the Bifrost, the rainbow bridge. He asks about the Bifrost and what it is. Asks about Yggdrasil, the great ash, the creatures of the ash tree. The High One tells of other places in heaven. So he talks about a lot of the gods themselves. He talks about Baldur, Frey, Freya, Njord, Skadi, Tyr, Bragi, uh, Hod, Vidar, Ali, Heimdall. And then you get to Loki. So, and uh, while they're talking, uh, the All-Father is speaking and continues on saying, Also counted among the Aesir is one whom some call slanderer of the gods, the source of deceit and the disgrace of all gods and men, named Loki or Lopt. He is the son of the giant Farbauti. His mother is named Lofi or Nal, and his brothers are Bülist and Helblindi. I hope I'm pronouncing these correct. Loki is pleasing, even beautiful to look at, but his nature is evil and he is undependable. More than others, he has the kind of wisdom known as cunning and is treacherous in all matters. He constantly places the gods in difficulties and often solves their problems with guile. His wife is Sugin and their son is Nari or Narfi. Now, um, I've also read the poetic Edda and 
if I'm not mistaken, I might be mistaken, the, there is a lot more stories that um, Loki is involved in within the poetic Edda. So the next chapter goes is actually titled Loki's Monstrous Children. Ooh. So it ends his wife Sigyn and their son is Nari. But Loki had other children with Angriboda or Angriboda, I don't know how it's pronounced, which means sorrow bringer, who was an ogress who lived in giant land or Jotunheim. Loki had three children. One was Fenris Wolf, the second was the Midgard Serpent, and the third was Hel. The Midgard Serpent is also known as Jormungandr. When the gods discovered that these three siblings were being brought up in giant land, they learned through prophecies that misfortune and evil were to be expected from these children. All of the gods became aware that harm was on the way, first because of the mother's nature, but even more so because of the father's. Now, if you know anything about um, Nordic mythology, you would know that Ragnarok, the end of their world, a, a, a huge part of it is when Fenris wolf or Fenrir, the the the, the huge wolf, um, basically, I, I'm pretty sure he fights uh, Odin or is it Thor? Yeah. So here it says that it's prophesized that. Uh, Fenrir will kill the god Odin during the events of Ragnarok, but will in turn be killed by Odin's son, Vidar. So, there you have it. Um, big roles to play when Ragnarok comes, and Loki is a big part of it. Or at least he, he led to big players in the game. Then, Allfather sent the gods to seize the children and bring them to him. When they appeared before him, he threw the serpent into the deep sea that surrounded all lands, but the serpent grew so large that now, out in the middle of the ocean, it lies coiled around all lands, biting its tail. So they visualize this world serpent as literally wrapping around the whole globe, right? Um, if you want a very nice representation in the God of War, um, the, the 2018 God of War game, they have an amazing representation of uh, of how Jormungandr would look or the world serpent. I think it's it's beautiful. So, uh, Hel, he threw down into Niflheim and made her ruler over nine worlds. She has the power to dole out lodgings and provisions to those who are sent to her, and they are the people who have died of disease or old age. Keep that in mind, right? So, disease and old age go to Hel. That's what they believed. They thought that Valhalla, or heaven, was reserved for people who died honorably on the battlefield, and Sadly enough, people who died from old age and disease would go to hell to, to hang out with hell herself, Loki's daughter. She, she has there an enormous dwelling with walls of immense height and huge gates. Her hall is called Eljudnir, El El sprayed with snowstorms. That's what it means. Her dish is hunger. Her knife is famine. Her slave is lazy. And slothful is her woman's servant. Here you can see some Christian... Um, some Christian influence because these are are, are related to the to the seven deadly sins. Uh, the threshold over which her people enter is a pitfall called Falandafhorad, falling to peril, and her bed is named Kor, which means sick bed, and her bed curtains are named Blik Yandabol, gleaming disaster. She is half black and a half lighter flesh color and is easily recognized, mostly. She is gloomy and cruel. Cruel. Black, half black and half light. It kind of sounds like Cruella de Vil. 
Does she not? The Aesir raised the wolf at home, but only Tyr had the courage to approach it and feed it. Tyr was one of the most powerful of the gods, so it's no surprise that he had the courage to feed it and approach it. But the gods saw how, how much the wolf grew every day and knew that all the prophecies foretold that it was destined to harm them. Then the Aesir devised a plan to make an especially strong fetter or chains. They named it Lading or Lading, I don't know how it's pronounced, and brought it to the wolf, inviting him to test his strength against it. As it seemed to the wolf that this, would not, this test would not require much strength, he let them do as they wished. The first time the wolf stretched the muscles in his legs, the fetter broke. Thus, he freed himself from lading. Next, the gods made a second fetter, twice as strong. It was called Dromi. Again, they asked the wolf to test the fetter, telling him that he would become renowned for his strength if such magnificent forging was unable to hold him. The wolf thought to himself that, even though the fetter was very strong, his strength had grown even more since he had broke lading. And he also recognized that to become renowned, he would have to place himself in danger, and so he let them put the fetter on him. When the Aesir were ready, the wolf started to twist and beat the fetter against the ground. He struggled with all his might, and using his legs, he snapped the fetter with such force that the pieces flew into the distance. Suddenly, he escaped from Dromi. Since then, there has been an expression, when a task is extremely difficult, that one frees oneself from lading, or breaks out from Dromi. That's pretty cool. After this happened, the gods began to fear that they would not succeed in binding the wolf. So Allfather sent Skirnir, or Bright One, Frey's messenger, down to Svartalfheim, Svartalfheim, which is the world of the Dark Elves. And there he had some dwarves make the fetter called Gleipnir. It was constructed from six elements. The nose of a cat's footsteps, the beard of a woman, the roots of a mountain, the sinew of a bear, the breath of a fish, and the spittle of a bird. Though previously you had no knowledge of these matters, you can now quickly see the proof that you are not deluded. You must have noticed that a woman has no beard, a cat's movement makes no loud noise, and mountains have no roots. Truly, I say, all you have been told is equally reliable, even though you have no way to test some things. Now, this is actually one of my favorite things in this story. They forged chains out of things that don't exist. There's something there. There's a very symbolic message there. Limiting a very powerful thing using non-existent things. I don't know what there is, but if you have any thoughts, I would really love to hear them. Um, yeah. So then Gangleri said, I can certainly understand the truth of what you say. I accept the examples you have used. But what did the fetter look like when it was completed? Hai answered, that I can easily tell you. The fetter was smooth and soft as a silk ribbon, yet it was reliable and strong. And so they keep talking and talking and talking. And um, this is kind of, I don't know, in Lord of the Rings, or yeah, in Lord of the Rings is a good one. You have Mithril, right? It's this very, very light, extremely durable metal. And, uh, and this is essentially a similar kind of concept. It's a very light, thin chain that's super strong and they thought so okay so here it says no one could pull it apart nevertheless they said that the wolf would be able to break it then the wolf answered it seems to me that a ribbon like this one which is so narrow a band offers no renown even if i break it apart but if it is made with cunning and treachery even though it looks unimpressive then i will not permit this band to be put on my legs 
cunning Fenris. He knew that he's going to get trapped. The Aesir replied that, that he could quickly snap such a narrow silky band as he had already broken powerful iron fetters. But if you are unable to break free from this band, the gods will have no reason to fear you. Then we will free you. Simple. And so he says, okay. They tie him up. And uh, that's where Fenris Wolf was trapped for ever until uh, Ragnarok. So during Ragnarok, he would break free from these fetters and go uh, fight Odin to the death. So they fastened the stone, <coughs> they fastened the fetters to a stone deep down in the earth. Then they took an enormous rock called Viti and drove it even further down into the earth, using it as an anchor post. As the wolf struggled, he opened his mouth, he gaped horribly trying to bite them, but they slipped a sword into his mouth. The hilt stuck in his lower gums and the blade in the upper gums, wedging his jaw up open. As he growled menacingly, saliva drooled from his mouth, forming the river called Van, or Hope. There he remains until Ragnarök. Damn. Pretty cool. So, at the end of the story, Gangleri says, What gruesome children Loki sired. All these brothers and sisters are in themselves fearsome, but why didn't the Aesir kill the wolf? since they could expect only destruction from him. The high answered, the gods hold only... High answered, the gods hold their sacred places and sanctuaries in such respect that they chose not to defile them with the wolf's blood, even though prophecies foretold that he would be the death of Odin. Hoo boy! That's cool stuff, man. I don't know. I, 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 I just like, oh yeah, I feel so good reading this stuff learning about the wolf and how he got tied up yeah it's pretty damn cool so this is this is the discussion of loki's child or or or, or loki's most scary child let's say fenrir um i'm definitely going to have other episodes on this I f I'm still kind of feeling out how I'm going to be doing the episodes. Maybe I'll do some episodes without those news, the science stuff in the beginning. Maybe do focused episodes uh, on, on just source material like this or like uh, Passport to Magonia um, so that I have more time to focus on them. I don't know if maybe you're enjoying them. Maybe it's boring that I'm just reading to you guys um, sections from the books. Um, let me know. I would appreciate it. And so I think... Uh, good time to end this episode would be right about now i will end it with a joke do i have a joke i'm gonna make a joke on the spot okay so there was a uh fuck i can't make up a joke uh well that's all folks peace